I've had times in my career where I have taken lateral moves. There are times in my career where I have gone down from a title that I had previously. And then I skyrocket up and go way above anything that I've ever had before. And it has not been a straight journey up. And I think that's okay. Sometimes the greatest things and skill sets that I have learned is when I've decided to take a step down. Because when you're stepping back, you're getting your hands dirty and touching the work in ways that senior level people, I would say they orchestrate teamwork from up high, from a 30,000 foot level, but they're not necessarily in the day to day. And there's a lot that you can miss when you're not in the day to day. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. Today's guest is Nzinga Shaw, better known as Zing, the first senior vice president and global chief impact officer of Velocity Global. She currently oversees their four centers of excellence, D&I, ESG, community engagement, and philanthropy. Zing is an experienced C-suite executive with extensive hands-on experience and knowledge spanning from change and crisis management to human capital, employee relations, talent acquisition, organizational and strategic planning, branding, and community engagement. Zing is also well-known for her pioneering DE&I work with the MBA serving as their first D&I officer, representing the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena franchise. There, she launched the Mosaic Symposium, model of shaping Atlanta through inclusive conversations, and made the Hawks the first professional sport team to march in pride and demonstrate public allyship to the LGTBQIA community. Additionally, she created the RISE Fellowship Program, Racial Inclusion and Social Equity, during her tenure as the Global Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer at Marsh McLennan, the world's largest professional services firm. Zing was the first Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer at four blue chip organizations, including Edelman, the NBA, Starbucks, and Marsh McLennan. She has been recognized with numerous 40 Under 40 awards from the likes of Sports Business Journal, Atlanta Business Chronicle, the Network Journal, and PR Week. In addition to serving on the Board of Trustees of Fisk University, the board of directors of the National Rugby Football League, ColorCom, Mothflame, and Arcos Sports Partners. She was appointed by President Jimmy Carter to serve a six-year term on the board of counselors of the Carter Center. Listen in for some great takeaways about how Zing has transformed some of the largest companies out there and continues to leave her mark on corporate America by making it better than she found it. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome pleasure of being with Nzinga, also known as Zing Shaw, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Impact Officer of Velocity Global. Thanks for joining us today, Zing. 
Thank you for having me, Larry. I'm excited to see you again. Yeah, same here. And I learned about you through the uh, Excel conference last year, and I loved your story. So it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show today. So thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, so what I want to do is I want, you know, I have a lot of background on you, but I want our audience to understand a bit about who Zing is and how you got to where you are today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I always start off with my personal story. I am a native New Yorker. I am an only child of two educators. Both of my parents are now deceased, but while living, my father was a professor of African-American history. He taught at NYU for many years. And my mother was a teacher in high school. And so growing up as an only child of educators, you can only imagine I was reading and writing very early in life. But I think that was a great foundation for who I have ultimately become. My mother died when I was 16 years old. And so while a junior in high school and having gone through such a tragedy, I would say that was really a pivotal moment in my life. And I had to decide where I was going to go to college. And I ended up going to Spelman College, which is a historically black college um, in Atlanta, Georgia for women. And I thought it was really important to pursue education at an HBCU for women at that time because of the loss of my mom. I needed to be around, I would say, figures that could nurture me, help me develop and grow and into my womanhood, and also having the opportunity to study alongside women that I could call sisters. As an only child, that was very important to me. And so Spelman delivered all of the things that I hoped the institution would, and I had a wonderful collegiate experience. I also uh, studied in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I was in a very new program at the time. It was called MLA. It stood for Master of Liberal Arts, and it gave me the opportunity to study across the disciplines. So I took courses at the Wharton School of Business, the Annenberg School for Communication, the School of Arts and Sciences, and the School of Social Work. But I would say the most exciting part of my graduate experience was spending a summer abroad at Oxford University in the UK. And while in the UK, I became very intellectually curious about diversity, equity, and inclusion, mostly because I came to the UK with a US-centric mindset, especially around issues of race and gender because we really focus on that a lot in the U.S. And so when I went over there, I remember meeting two natives of the U.K. We were at a pub one night, and the woman was black like me, and the man was white, and we were all in our mid-20s and struck up a fun conversation. And at some point during the discussion, I brought up race. And I don't really remember why I did that, but they both looked at me and in a very surprising fashion, they said that they didn't understand what I was talking about. And so I tried to go a little bit deeper and they both looked at me and said, well, we don't really think about race over here. We think more about socioeconomic status. And so we see that we are both British and you are American. And for me, Larry, that was like, I would say the point in my life where I realized that just because you grow up in a place and you were taught certain things does not mean that everyone around the world has that same worldview or mindset. And for me, traveling globally was the turning point in my life. And so as I came back into the U.S. and graduated from grad school, I focused all of my attention and efforts on human resources and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. 
And so I have been an industry agnostic practitioner for the past 20 plus years. I call myself industry agnostic because I've intentionally worked in a variety of industries. I really want to understand what human beings need, want, and desire in the workplace. And so I knew that if I only stayed in one industry, I wouldn't have a holistic view of of how that turned out. And so I've worked in sports and entertainment at the Yankees Entertainment and Sports Network, which is also known as the S Network. It is the home of the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Nets in terms of broadcasting all of their games. I also worked at the National Football League and the National Basketball Association, representing the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena as the first chief diversity and inclusion officer ever in the NBA. But I've also worked in public relations at Edelman as a VP of HR, and then I was promoted into the head of diversity and inclusion for the agency. Edelman is the largest PR and integrated marketing agency in the world. I was also the global chief diversity and inclusion officer at Starbucks um, and moved my family out to Seattle for that opportunity. So I've, you know, been doing this work, I would say for two plus decades, and I am very passionate about it, um, both from a lived experience of being an African-American woman also from a practical experience of leading diversity, equity, and inclusion in major blue chip organizations, but lastly, as an academic. So I have now turned um, a lot of my interest towards the academic side of this work, and I am a professor at Fisk University, which is a historically black college in Nashville, Tennessee. I teach in the honors program, a course on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a part of the John R. Lewis Institute for Social Justice. So I've got a lot going on. And with all of that, I am a mom of three. I'm living a good life right now, Larry. Amazing. And I'm sorry about you know, your mom. I lost my mom in her in my 20s, very early 20s. She was sick from when I was a teenager. So, uh, And I come from a family where my dad was a high school teacher. He taught in the, uh, the high school that he went to in the Bronx. So he basically never left that building for like 40 plus years. So I can definitely align with uh, what you're saying coming from that education component, etc. And uh, kind of similar experiences, but different, you know, from, from the life side of things. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is I, and I've heard you share the powerful story about you walking away from an NCAA scholarship. And I would love for you to share with our listeners that story, because I found it very powerful. Sure. Well, like I said, when I was thinking about where to pursue collegiate education, A lot of opportunity came for me to be a runner. I was a track and field athlete in high school, and I was very good in track and field. And so I got a lot of opportunities to be a D1 runner at some pretty prominent schools. And I turned down two scholarships in particular, one to the University of Kentucky and one at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to go to Spelman because I realized that running during college would be like pursuing a job. And I did not need a job at that particular time in my life. I needed to be nurtured. I needed to lean into the academic setting that I was going to be in. I needed to find myself in many ways. And I think that running might've been a distraction from the healing process and from coming into my adulthood in a way that would nurture me for the rest of my life. And so, again, I will tell you, I was very forward-looking, forward-thinking at a young age and realized that if 
I wanted to run, I could always be a runner, right? It, like, nothing mm-hmm. would stop me from hitting the road and, on any given day. But pursuing it as a means to get out of college was not going to be ideal for who I needed to become. And so I turned down full scholarships and ended up going into debt to pay for Spelman because Spelman did not have a running program. They didn't have an athletic program. This was a choice for me. And for me, it was an investment in myself. And I decided to invest in myself. I think it paid off well. And, you know, I think the other thing is, I think what you describe is something that a lot of high school and and proficient athletes don't think about as they start going to that, you know, next level. And my older son just started uh, Drexel in Philly. He's just finishing up or finished up his first year not too long ago. And one of the conversations we had was him and he was a hockey player or is a hockey player. And it's a little bit different animal than other collegiate sports. But with that being said, you know, we had a conversation, you know, very early on about, you know, is it make sense for him to go play junior hockey to potentially play division three hockey somewhere? Or does it make more sense to play maybe club hockey, not as competitive, maybe more competitive in certain regards, but not as regimented and being like a school sport, if you will, in terms of getting a better education out of it. And, you know, ultimately, like you, he chose to get the education and forego the hockey. And, you know, I think it comes a point where you have to make those decisions. And unfortunately, sometimes our young folks, lucky for you, are mature enough and and able enough and have the foresight to make those decisions. So, uh, you know, I applaud you because those are those are tough ones, because in that moment, you want to, you know, be an athlete still and kind of delay being, uh, you know, in the real world, I guess, so to speak. If I went the route of running, it could have led to an Olympic career, perhaps, you know, I will never know. But what I choose to do is not live my life with regret. I will never know what could have been, but I believe that I made the best decision at the time with everything that was in front of me. Yeah. And I think, you know, that ties into what I wanted to talk about next, which, you know, you talk a lot about being your authentic self and, you know, being very important. And I I think that is too, right? I think it's very draining not to be your authentic self. It's almost more difficult to try to put up that front and be somebody else when you're not. It's easier to be and less draining and more energizing if you're your authentic self. How has that, you know, you being you helped craft your life's path? Well, it has been everything in terms of my life craft because I have never worried about someone else's opinion of me or of the the work that I've been doing or the things that I like, the things that I wear, where I live, what I drive. I, I just rarely think about someone else's opinion because I realize that I have been given this one life and so I have to be happy in it. And I know the things that make me happy. And so whether or not the crowd loves that or whether or not the crowd dislikes that is is irrelevant. It's really about feeling that I'm living a purpose-driven life where I'm utilizing the tools that and skills that have been given to me to help others. And so living authentically has, I think, shaped my career in many ways. Because if you really think about what a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist does, they try to nurture and foster a workplace where people can not only show up as their authentic selves, but feel a full sense of belonging and that they are genuinely appreciated and loved. And so the way that I can help curate that in organizations is by feeling it within myself first. 
if I don't feel good about who I am and love myself and feel that I belong, how can I possibly make anyone else feel that that is their path too? So I think authenticity has been key and core to my success because I truly feel that I have been able to inspire others to show up as themselves. I've had, I'll never forget, I gave a speech once at a conference at the National Black MBA Association conference last year. And a woman stood up during the Q&A portion and she said, thank you for your speech. I want to tell the audience a secret that I've been holding on to for my entire life. And I said, oh my goodness, <laughs> what could it be? <laughs> and she said, I'm a lesbian. And I've never had the courage to tell anybody that until now, because you've given me the strength to believe that it's going to be okay. So when I have stories like that happen and things like that occur, I know that living authentically is the best choice. I agree. And uh, we're a big follower of uh, Gino Wickman. And uh, one of the things he put out recently, he's the founder of the Entrepreneur's Operating System. He came out with the uh, 10 disciplines, right? And one of the disciplines was be your authentic self. It's very important. And he would talk about like he went to, I think, his 40th birthday party or something like that. And he wa it was a surprise party his spouse had put on for him. And he walked into the room and he started scanning the room and he saw like multiple groups like of people from different parts of his life, like some from high school, some from college, some from the work world. And he felt like he was a different person with each of them. And he's like, how much energy does it take for me to do that? And now he talks about, you know, be your authentic self and let your, as he calls it, let your freak flag fly, whatever that may be. And, uh, you know, it just is that much more energizing as a human and, and you're that much more impactful as a result of it. And clearly, you know, you being your authentic self has helped others kind of find their authentic self and, and share, which is fantastic. And I applaud you for that. Thank you. You know, Zing, you've worked for some iconic brands. I mean, you mentioned them in the first few minutes of our conversation from NFL to NBA to Starbucks. Can you share with our audience, you know, what was your takeaways from 10 years with organizations like this, like these iconic brands that are, you know, well known across the board? Well, first and foremost, I'll say all that glitters is not gold. <laughs> so I think that a lot of times people target big brands and think that when you go there, you're going to find perfection. And what I found across the board is that people have challenges, people have strengths, but they also have opportunities for growth. And so that has been a consistent pull through with all of the organizations that I've been in. Um, one thing I will say is that the sports organizations that I've worked for have had employees that are very passionate about what we do. I would say the passion of people that work in sports and entertainment is unmatched. And it's not really surprising when you think about the games that we put on and the ways that we have to entertain our fans and communities. It, it takes a lot of energy and effort. And so most of the time, and it's long, you know, the seasons are long. When I worked in baseball, we were playing 162 games a season. I mean, it was just very long and intense. And so that passion, I think, of the colleagues uh, was re really critically important in helping to sustain our organizations. Um, but I would also say I've had experience in Fortune 500 organizations like Starbucks and Marsh McLennan. And those organizations are filled with colleagues that are extremely smart, brilliant in many ways, just coming up with some of the most innovative programming, initiatives, marketing, 
it's unmatched. And so for me, I just feel grateful that I've been able to work across industries and work at very small, privately held companies, very large, publicly traded companies, sitting on several nonprofit boards. It's been important for me to see the variety that people bring to the table and also figuring out how to leverage these differences. When an organization truly leverages the people that are inside and does not try to create people that are cookie cutters of one another, but embraces the difference that everybody brings and leverages it, that's really when you see the best work being done, most innovation coming forward and high performing teams. So I've loved all of my experiences. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've taken at least a few things from every stop along the way, which is fantastic. And, you know, maybe you could share with us, is is there one story that kind of stands out, you know, from an impact standpoint, from one of those tenures that you could share with us? Sure. So when I think about impact, I think about others. What can you do to positively contribute to someone else's life? When I was at the Atlanta Hawks, we we're really thinking about the Atlanta community and what was missing and what could our small little basketball team possibly bring to the community. And so we contacted the office of the mayor in the city of Atlanta to just really find out from a research and a data perspective, what communities need help and how can we be of assistance? And we found a staggering piece of of research that came out of the, the office. What they told us is that There's a direct correlation between children being able to read at grade level in the fourth grade. And if they're not able to read at grade level in the fourth grade, the Department of Education contacts the Department of Corrections and lets them know how many beds to have available in 10 years. And those numbers are actually aligning. So if you cannot read at an adequate level in the fourth grade, so by the time you're eight or nine years old, 10 years later, when you're 18 or 19, the government believes that you will be incarcerated and the numbers are adding up. So we said to ourselves, well, why aren't kids reading? What challenges are they facing? And we realized that a lot of them have poor vision and their parents don't have access to vision insurance, money to buy eyeglasses. And so a lot of times kids uh, will sit towards the back of the classroom when they're unable to see or engage. They, they go even further back, and that sets them further back in their learning journey. And so we partnered with an organization called Vision to Learn. Vision to Learn is a 501c3 that provides eyeglasses to children in marginalized communities, free of charge to the children. Part of our philanthropic efforts at the Atlanta Hawks through our foundation was to fund vision to learn to go into Atlanta public schools, test fourth graders for their eyesight. And if they had visual deficits to provide them with eyeglasses and we branded them with the Atlanta Hawks on the side so that they could always remember when they got their first pair of glasses. And I remember going into a school one day when we had a clinic to give all of the kids their glasses. And this one young boy, as he put on his eyeglasses, he kind of stopped and he looked around very slowly, and he began to weep. He started crying. Now, meanwhile, all the other kids were running and jumping and excited and high-fiving and playing, but this guy was just by himself. And so I gravitated over to him and I said, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? He just cried and, and he said very slowly, he said, I can see. 
And I said, okay, well, tell me what that means to you. He said, I never knew all of these things were in this room before. I never saw that over there. And it started pointing at the wall. And he said, I love what I see. This is so beautiful. And for me, I had to hold myself together. I remember driving home and, and crying. I realized that that young man's life changed forever with this simple gesture of providing him with eyeglasses and the trajectory of his life changed. And we followed him. We followed him for a couple of years and he is now an honor student in junior high school and thriving. So when you say impact, that's what, you know, that was a moment for me. I don't think impact is always bottom line driven. I don't always think it's increasing revenue. I think that if you're able to change a person's life and make it better and you didn't want anything back from them, that for me is impact. I think that's a great example. I don't think there's probably any better example of impact than that story right there. Number one is I never even, I never heard nor realized about that correlation. So that was a, an eye opener for me. And then the fact that, you know, you could have that kind of impact and, you know, for a sports team to do it, it's not really that hard of a task for them to do in terms of getting involved in the community. And the, I think one thing you probably didn't mention, but He's probably going to be a Hawks fan for life after that. <laughs> you would think. If he wasn't beforehand, he is now. You know, so many grown adults we cannot bring along, but your generation we can bring them along. There you go. I think I think that's a, a fantastic story, and uh, thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I heard you talk about was about your career path, and I, I thought you had such a unique perspective, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll let you explain it, but talking about the corporate ladder and trying to climb up it, and you know, your view is it's more of a jungle gym. Can you share that you know, unique insight and how that has helped craft your journey? Absolutely. So when I was in college, There were a lot of young ladies at Spelman that were going the, I would say, traditional business route. So they were econ majors and they were thinking about going to a financial services firm right out of college and and going up that track. And so that was kind of a thing back then, like go work at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan and, and start off as an analyst and just keep going up, 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 up. But for me, I took a totally different approach. I, I started my career in human resources at a publication. I worked at Essence Magazine and then I worked, you know, in HR at the Yes Network, the NFL. But, you know, I've I've had times in my career where I have taken lateral moves. There are times in my career where I have gone down from a title that I had previously. And then I skyrocket up and go way above anything that I've ever had before. And, And sometimes in my professional career, it has not been a straight journey up. And I think that's okay because along the way, along these lessons that I've been able to accumulate along the way, I've realized that sometimes the greatest things and skill sets that I have learned is when I've decided to take a step down. Because when you're stepping back, you're getting your hands dirty and touching the work in ways that senior level people, I would say they orchestrate teamwork from up high from a 30,000 foot level, but they're not necessarily in the day to day. And there's a lot that you can miss when you're not in the day to day relationships that I have been able to build were by being on the ground with the people lessons that I have learned about my craft and, and doing the actual work that I do. I would not be considered a thought leader if I wasn't touching the work. 
So for me, I always try to encourage youth that I talk to to take a non-traditional path. Follow your heart, follow the signs, but there's no ladder that will get you to this magical place. Magic is what you make it. Magic is if you believe. And if you do believe, then you will do all of the right things to, to see it come to fruition. So that's how I've approached my career. Yeah, to me, you know, when I hear you talk about that, I just think about the fact that there doesn't have to be one path to get to where you ultimately want to be. And as long as you're learning, growing and feeling energized along the way and the path you're taking, maybe it takes a little bit longer, but maybe it benefits you a lot more greatly because of the different path you took rather than what was outset for the masses, which is, you know, something a lot of, you know, I, I don't think is really imparted upon our young people. So I think it's really important you sharing that because it shows people. I mean, as entrepreneurs listening, entrepreneurs are kind of used to that ladder. You know, there really isn't. It's more of a jungle gym jumping around because things change over time. But in that corporate sense, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And there are opportunities that may be perceived as a step down. But by taking that step down, it may give you the breath, the energy to leapfrog, you know, several other rungs, like you mentioned, that uh, you had experience. So that's fantastic. I think perception can certainly be a killer to people's dreams. Worrying about what others perceive has literally stopped so many people from achieving ultimate success because of someone else's fears and their cause for concern. Then you don't lean into all of the talents and gifts that you've been given and you don't realize your full potential. And so I never wanted to, again, like I told you earlier, I don't like to live with regret. Now, if I do something and I fail, that's okay because I tried and there will be a lesson out of the failure. But if I don't try because I was worried about the perception of what somebody else was thinking, that to me is the ultimate failure. And I never want that to be my story. I agree with that. I, you know, I think failure is what you make it. And as long as there's a lesson and a learning opportunity, then it's worthwhile, of course. And then, you know, I think part of the problem is in the social media age that we're in and, you know, everything's got to be Instagram worthy, so to speak, and, you know, frame this perfect picture, so to speak. But, you know, what's perfect and, and what, what is ideal for me is not ideal for you per se. You know, we have to learn, I think, to some degree, and you mentioned it earlier, to be able to push away what other people may think in order to be uh, successful to our full potential. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. 100%. What do you think is the most important thing that people need to understand about diversity and inclusion? What's a real important takeaway that people need to understand? Well, first and foremost, it's not about race and gender, because I think that's all we talk about when we talk about diversity and inclusion. It's really about all of the things that a person brings to the table, both seen and unseen, mostly unseen, because all of our life's experiences are about places that we've been, people that we've met, languages that we speak, ideas that we have. And so a lot of that comes from just you being on the planet and interacting and engaging. So I think what people need to understand about diversity, equity, and inclusion is number one, it's not one person's job to do. It's everybody's job. It's holistic. It's about love and belonging. So figuring out how to show love and how to create spaces and environments where everyone can belong, 
no matter what. If they dye their hair blue, who cares? Come to work as long as you're working, right? Like if you're gay, it's okay. Come to work and, and put a picture of your partner on your desk as long as you're working. Like I think sometimes human beings, we get so caught up in our differences that we neglect to understand that you could be putting someone to the side that is the most valuable person that you needed in your life only because of something that they couldn't control. That's another thing that we need to understand about diversity and inclusion. Most people can't control the things that we talk about. You can't control your race. You can't control your gender, your sexual orientation. These are things that were assigned to us from the moment that we took our first breath. And so if these are things that we don't have control over, it's likely a silly idea to hate each other because of them. I think those are some great takeaways. And, you know, one of the things that we struggle with in our profession is it's very homogeneous. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, similarities. And I think that especially when you're talking about people's goals and their dreams and what they're looking to achieve in their life, it's very helpful to have those different point of views. Like, like you said, when you went over to England and you met with those folks, it gave you a whole different perspective. Having somebody like that at a firm is very helpful because it gives you know, if you don't have others like them, it gives you an idea of what's going on outside the walls of the U.S. and, and gives you a little insight there, which is it's always important and helpful, I think. And it can also strengthen your business. When I was at Starbucks, we were thinking about sustainability a lot, especially given that the organization uses a lot of water. It takes a lot of water to make coffee on a daily basis. And so part of our sustainability efforts were around how do we protect the environment? I remember that the team wanted to do away with all paper goods in, you know, support of the environment. And we realized after having discussions with the Disability Advocacy Network, which was one of the employee resource groups at Starbucks, that there are people in the community that have certain disabilities or limited abilities that need paper goods versus plastic for a very specific reason, because paper disintegrates very quickly. And if you have a person that has limb differences, let's say, for example, maybe an arm um, is missing or just, uh, I would say, low mobility, the paper disintegrating very quickly will make it very hard for them to finish their drink and their beverage. So because of those conversations, we ended up adopting a model where we made paper goods available upon request with special signage in the store so that our customers knew that was an option, et cetera. So if we didn't talk to our disability community, if we didn't talk to all of the different networks that we oftentimes used to plug for insights as it related to new products that we were coming out with or just how we marketed to emerging communities, we could have really, really been in, in a world of trouble. And so I, you know, I also think diversity, equity, and inclusion lends itself to companies becoming more innovative and serving multitudes of clients versus to your earlier point, just having the homogeneity of a singular set of clients or employees or mindsets. It's just, it's not good for business. Agreed. I agree with you a thousand percent. So what is the best way if I'm an ally, right? And I want to support this. What is the best way for allies to offer support in this area? Well, you have to do more than offer support. You have to be a, become part of the communities that you want to support. A lot of times 
when people say the word ally, they say it because they have self-defined themselves that way. And the true definition of an ally is because the community that you choose to support calls you an ally because they say that you have been helpful and that you are an advocate and a champion for their cause. So um, I would say first and foremost, get deep with the community. If there are specific groups or demographic sets that you would like to be helpful for, go on a listening tour. A lot of times people want to be allies. And so they automatically come in trying to problem solve or trying to, you know, introduce solutions to the table without really knowing the, the issues or, or what's hurting and what's um, preventing us from having the success that we want. So get in there with the community, do some community service on the weekends, bring your kids. And I'm talking to everyone, not just you, Larry. I myself take my kids on the weekend to a homeless shelter and we interact with homeless moms and children and we donate clothing, we help feed, etc. And I'm doing that for a very specific reason, because me and my kids, we live in a nice neighborhood and I don't want them to lose track of reality and, and think that this is a normal way of life. It's not. There are people that are starving. There are people that don't have homes and roofs. And it helps my children to grow and to be empathetic leaders. I think a lot of times um, allyship is really just about empathy and the way that you become empathetic about a community is being with the community. If you're not engaged with these people at all, then you can't be an ally to them. I agree with you as well. I, I think that instance where people start trying to problem solve without really having a full working knowledge is putting the cart before the horse in a, in, a, in a big way. And I agree with you. I think another piece to this, and you could agree with me or disagree, is like you said, is teaching the next generation so that it's not something they have to seek out and find that it's ingrained in them from the very beginning. Like my kids uh, probably didn't do it in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. But prior to that, uh, we would go to Walmart and we'd pay off people's layaways and, you know, just help them out just as an act of kindness because they get a lot of gifts and they get a lot of things. They have a lot of stuff and they're very grateful for that. And we want them to make them feel even more grateful that there are families that, you know, they didn't even know what a layaway was before we started that process. And and they learned, oh, you can buy something in April and start paying it off. Yeah. And then we would go and help out a couple of families and do that. So there are different things that and I think it's our responsibility if we're going to help out long term so that they don't have to go seek it out is to teach them from the very beginning that this is just the way life is. It's not anything, you know, different or over the it's it's the way you should be kind of thing. I love it. I think it's so kind. And I think that it's important for your children to see that type of behavior because they are the next leaders. They are the next generation of corporate executives, of philanthropists, of academics, of doctors, of lawyers, and every profession that's out there that we're raising. them. And so if our goal is to become allies and to be forward thinking in this space, you've got to do what you just described. You've got to take your kids out. You've got to show them that there is a, a sadder reality for many and, and you have to show them how to be giving.
And so I love what you're doing. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. So what are some tips that you can share how to build leadership in an organization? Because clearly having an environment that's you know, inclusive and including a lot of voices, I would imagine is very helpful to creating that leadership in an organization. But you know, what are some tips if I'm an entrepreneur listening or business owner, what are some things I should be thinking about from a leadership perspective in order to be doing a better job and, and creating that culture? of leadership in my organization? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, leadership is such a broad term and phrase. So I'll just say this. Um, Harvard Business Review wrote an article and they had a phrase in there where they said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I use that often, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So I, you know, listen, a lot of times leaders are so hyper-focused on strat planning and getting into a room and ideating and putting ideas on a whiteboard, but without cultivating an environment where you actually have practitioners to make that strategy come to life, all it is is words on paper. So I think that what leaders can do is start spending a lot of time with their colleagues listening. I always say God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. I use that too. <laughs> oh, well, listen, me and you must have- With my kids a lot more so than my, my business, but yes. Yeah, so, you know, leaders need to be listening. Leaders need to stop strategizing as much as they are and start building the culture of empathy, belonging, and love within their organizations. I also think leaders need to trust people in ways that they have not trusted before. The pandemic brought a new way of thinking and a new way of working because a lot of us had to work virtually. And so that means that our bosses were not laying eyes on us at every moment of the day as as they did when we were in the office. They had to trust us and believe that when the assignment we said we were going to get done was due, that it would come up um, and that we would deliver it. And so Trust is a huge component to what leaders need to be thinking about as this next generation of workers is entering the workforce, because likely we will never have a five days a week, 40 hours, you know, a week work schedule from the office. A lot of these organizations are working virtually. And and so trust is a, a huge factor. And then lastly, I think we need to develop our people by giving them stretch assignments Just because someone entered your organization with a specific job description and title doesn't mean that they're going to be in that place forever. And it also means that you might have an opportunity to help them learn, grow, and develop in ways that your organization can better utilize them. So all of those things for me are important items that leaders should be thinking about as they develop their their companies. Yeah, we're very much aligned. It must be that teacher background from our parents that are very similar. But I, I agree. I when when we hire new folks here, we're looking for new stakeholders. One of the things I always ask them because listen, some people really are applying for a role, and that's the role they love and they want to be there. And on the flip side, there are people that want to learn, grow, and move up and move to higher, you know, more challenging work. And we ask them point blank, you know, is this a 
role that you want to maintain? Or are you looking for growth out of the role? Because we want to know that. I want to know that as a leader so I know if they want me to put in that energy because I don't want to move somebody into a role that they don't want to be in, right, or strive for. But at the same time, I want to be able to give somebody the tools and the ability to move into a new role if that's what they so choose to. So, uh, but sometimes they think, people think it's like a trick question. I'm like, no, it's not a trick question. I just, we want to serve you as best we can because if we serve you as best we can, my view is they'll serve our clients and the families that we serve as best as they can. And it kind of just has that rippling effect from a leadership perspective. But it's very telling that people think that's a trick question. And, and the reason I think it's telling is because there's a lot of trauma in the workplace and a lot of organizations that, you know, claim to be people first, when you go inside of those companies, you have a very different experience. And that's why when you asked me earlier in our conversation about all of these wonderful organizations that I've worked in, I, I think I have a very realistic sense that oftentimes what is advertised is not what is your lived experience. So, you know, we've got a, a huge responsibility as corporate citizens to ensure that the audio is matching the video. So what we're saying is what we're doing. And I think that part of the reason that you've experienced folks that were hesitant to believe that your words were genuine is because of previous experiences that they may have had where bosses didn't ask their opinion right. or didn't really care. And it's sad because it's probably more common than you think. I think it's more common than not. But uh, so I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But and Zing, it's been a pleasure having you on our show. And this is the Midland Money Mindset. We end every show by asking each of our guests the same question because we like to talk about joyous things. And that is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Today, I took a jog with my husband and my dog, Duke. We ran for one hour. So we were struggling towards the end. But when we got home, we both felt refreshed. And this is putting me on the path for something that I promised myself on January 1st. So every year when the year begins, I do a vision board and I write down or put pictures on my vision board or, or just put things that I want to have happen um, for me and my life and my family for the upcoming year. And so on my vision board this year, I'm actually looking at it right now. I have physical fitness and pushing myself a lot further than I did last year on my vision board. So that made me feel really good today. I feel like I accomplished a lot. We ran three miles and our dog was with us. And then we were chatting while we were doing that because we weren't running at a rigorous rate of speed, but right. you know, just being able to spend some quality time with my husband and working out makes me feel good and refreshed. So today was a good day. And speaking to you. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's a cop out though to the question, but I appreciate the, uh, the thought there. So we'll have all of your information in the show notes, but if people want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you, what's the best and easiest place for them to do that? Well, I would say go to LinkedIn. I like to post on LinkedIn. A lot of the content that I write is there and I engage with a lot of folks. So you can just look me up by my first name, Nzinga, N-Z-I-N-G-A, Zingshaw. Nzinga Zingshaw. That's how I'm uh, listed on LinkedIn and it's the best way to find me. Fantastic. Well, listen, Zing, thanks again. It's been a pleasure and uh, make it a great day. Thank you, Larry. You too. I want to thank Nzinga Shaw, Zing, for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. 
Zing has taken her life experiences and used them to fuel change within corporate America and inspire others. Zing has made a huge impact on some of the largest organizations in the world and continues to leave a positive mark. Her ideas and impact are beyond measure. Zing and Velocity Global can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.